Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today's podcast brings together two unlikely bedfellows, Josephine Baker and Harry Houdini. And that's because we're going to give you a brief history of vaudeville, which flourished from the 1890s to the 1930s. And it all started with variety shows in the 1850s and 60s. These were geared toward men. And, well, you know, let's think of today's buddy comedies. They're not generally known for being particularly highbrow. You might describe them as vulgar or obscene. But we also have genres like burlesque and circuses, dime museums, medicine shows, and Wild West shows. And all of these kind of come together, along with European musical traditions, minstrel shows, and Yiddish theater. Vaudeville takes all of it, except, of course, for the burlesque, mixes it up, makes it family-friendly, and puts it on stage. So the wife and kids could come now, along with the guy, opening up all sorts of profits for the men who ran the business. And there's a fantastic notice to performers described by Edwin Royal, who was a vaudevillian. I keep trying really hard not to say vaudevillain. I'll keep trying. In Scribner's in 1899, and here it is. You are hereby warned that your act must be free from all vulgarity and suggestiveness in words, action, and costume while playing in any of Mr. Blank's houses. And all vulgar, double-meaning, and profane words and songs must be cut out of your act before the first performance. If you are in doubt as to what is right or wrong, submit it to the resident manager at rehearsal. Such words as liar, slob, son of a gun, devil, sucker, damn, and all other words unfit for the ears of ladies and children. Also, any reference to questionable streets, resorts, localities, and bar rooms are prohibited under fine of instant discharge. Well, son of a gun, Katie, <laughs> let's get going. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's inappropriate. So the man who many consider the father of vaudeville, Tony Pastor, staged the first popular show of this kind in 1881 in New York. And there's no liquor, of course, and he might even give you a ham if you come to the show, or some coal, so immediately, family-friendly. Yeah, I would be more inclined to go to a show if someone were giving me a ham. There's an awesome website that's designed by Rick Easton of UVA, which you can easily find if you type vaudeville into Google. He's one of the first results. Um, And he says that the guy we should be talking about as the father of vaudeville is Benjamin Franklin Keith who started off his career with a museum featuring Baby Alice, the midget wonder, but ended up being the man who really understood his American audience. Yeah. They wanted high and low. Yeah, they they like this crazy circus stuff, but they also want real respected actors, somebody who they could maybe tell their friends, oh, I'm going to see, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, the respected actor, and they get to see some strongman stuff on the side. So like Snooky and Meryl Streep on the same stage as I explained it to Sarah earlier. This brought in the respectable crowd, which won over Boston's Catholic Church, which was very much in control of the city, so don't underestimate their power. And they supported him because they wanted more of this clean Clean entertainment entertainment. rather than people going to saloons. Family-friendly stuff. Get the guys taking their wife and kids out to a vaudeville show instead of hanging out at the bar. So what is a vaudeville show? It's a dozen or so acts, none is longer than 30 minutes. 
And we've got all kinds of performers, magicians, strongmen, acrobats, comedians, dancers, singers, jugglers, trained animals, and you know how much we love bears, monologists, impressionists, actors performing one acts, contortionists. Honestly, it sounds really fantastic. I'd like to go to one. But what is it like if you're, if you're one of these people, if you're a strong man or a contortionist or a dancer? And it's, it's a hard life. You're basically singing for your supper. It was hard to break into show business then as it is now. And you show up for an open call. You do your best to try to stand out, um, auditioning for this impassive judge. And then you either make it or you don't. And it's a lot more likely that you don't make it. And maybe, if you're lucky, you have some sort of gimmick that makes you stand out, say, seven tap-dancing kids, and then you get your chance on stage. And if the audience likes you, you're in. They might book you again. And if they don't, you're starting again. Get the cane pulling you off. (laughs) Or a whistle from the wings. And the experience as an actor, according to Mr. Royal, he's saying it might be a little embarrassing for a respected actor to get on stage with circus freaks, but the uh, the money might win you over. You could sell your integrity for a little bit of that. It was also steady work. It was um, nice to be part of a company who arranged all your touring schedules for you. and your, Took care of the logistics. Yeah, took care of the business of traveling around the country, performing at all these different theaters. Um, you were essentially looked after. And you had a steady salary on the way, or at least a fairly steady salary. And we were also talking earlier about advertising, because, of course, you couldn't list 20 people on the bill who were performing. No one would even look at it. So you've got to pick a star, someone with name recognition, someone who's gimmicky and cool enough for people to want to come in, Um, someone like the gorgeous Lillian Russell, perhaps. And that made that person the headliner on the posters. And fame followed, if you were lucky, and a darn good salary. But many stars who we think of from later genres actually start off as vaudevillians. Fred Astaire, for example, starts at age seven. And it wasn't unusual for people to start that young. And it was very common for families to be on stage together. Whenever I think of performing families, uh, the first to come to mind is always the Flying Walendas, I think, just because I like their name. Standout name, yeah. <laughs> but there were a lot more than that. The Seven Little Foys were these seven tap-dancing kids of Eddie Foy Sr. Apparently, I think my family missed out on a big opportunity because there are six of us and none of us it's can not tap too late, dance, Katie. So can sign them all up for tap-dancing lessons. <laughs> maybe sometime soon. Some better-known stars were the Three Stooges, well... I guess only two of them were brothers, but we're going to count them. And the Marx Brothers, even if Gummo and Zeppo didn't really work out. And the comedians, like the Three Stooges or the Marx Brothers, are really big hits. Even though, it, with all these rules, you know, no, um, no slob, no damn, no son of a <laughs> no gun. No son of a gun. Um, it seems like it would probably be really, really hard for them to make clean jokes. We can't have a Richard Pryor on stage yeah, I, here. I don't think the aristocrats really would have played there. And Royal had a good quote about that, too. He said, from the artist who balances a set of parlor furniture on his nose to the academic baboon, there is one concentrated, strenuous struggle for a laugh. No artist can afford to do without it. It hangs like a solemn and awful obligation over everything. So consequently, because we can't have sexual jokes, we end up with a lot of race-based jokes, and including the use of blackface, like we mentioned. And many acts are done by two comedians who sort of play up comedic stereotypes. 
the Jewish boy, the fat boy, you know, they, they assume a role and, and run with it. And insult one another, and just as many comedians then stole each other's jokes as they do now. It was a fairly notorious pitfall in the business. But there were a lot of other people who got their start in vaudeville, um, including the father of modern bodybuilding, strongman Eugene Sandow, uh, caustic comedian W.C. Fields, the adored cowboy comedian, which is a title I enjoy, Will Rogers, uh, Lillian Russell, like we mentioned, our entertainment star Al Jolson, singer Bessie Smith. And Houdini, of course. Well, of course. Who we've already talked about, even though vaudeville was not... Um, it was not the right milieu. For, no, it for wasn't. Houdini. It didn't highlight his type of skills. He was up there doing card tricks and... And that's not what Houdini about. That was about. before he understood showmanship. We've also got one of my personal favorites, uh, Sophie Tucker, who was known as the last of the Red Hot Mamas. And she started singing at the kosher diner her family owned. She was actually forced to perform in blackface when she started on vaudeville. The oft-repeated story is that her producer thought she was too fat and too ugly to be on stage without it. And when she lost her makeup at a gig, she appeared on stage without it, told the audience that before then she'd been forced to perform in it, and people loved her from that day on. Yeah. We've also got the Goldbergs, which is notable because it becomes not only a huge radio success after vaudeville meets its end, but the first major American sitcom, and the one that sort of defines the, the sitcom genre... I also really love Eva Tangue. I might be saying her name completely wrong. And there's a fantastic article about her by Jody Rosen on Slate called Vanishing Act in Search of Eva Tangue, the First Rock Star, which you should definitely read. But the list of famous vaudevillians is way too big to tackle in one podcast. So I think we're going to do a follow-up about some of our favorites. And we'd also like to know about some of your favorite old movie stars uh, for a future podcast. So write to us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com and see if they make the cut. So we've talked about the performers a lot now about vaudeville, but talking about the business, it's a really, really big business. I mean, this is before Very lucrative. This is before Hollywood. This is before TV. We have more than twenty-five thousand performers in theaters in every community. This is the the big entertainment for the country. And most vaudeville theaters were part of a circuit, which meant that one guy controlled a whole chain of theaters. The big ones were the United Booking Office and the Orpheum Circuit. The United Booking Office had 400 theaters, just to give you an idea of uh, the scale of this. And and this is why the companies are able to travel, and this is the benefit that comes from being in a vaudeville troupe, that you go to the 400 theaters and everything's already worked out for you. Some of these theaters opened at breakfast and stayed open till quite late at night. Um, that way they could give a few performances in one day, four or five. And if you owned a circuit, you could get tens of thousands of people in and out if you could sell out the house. And the biggest house of them all was the Palace Theater in New York City. And it was a huge deal to headline here. I mean, you could compare it to maybe Madison Square Garden today. Or bigger than that, I'm not sure. Uh, and the big men of the business were the aforementioned Mr. Keith and his partner, Edward F. Albee. Yes, the father of the playwright. And their partnership in 1885 pretty much gave them a monopoly. Albee got his start in the circus and became basically a <laughs> vaudeville dictator. And Martin Beck was another biggie here. We've 
brought him up before in our Houdini podcast, but he builds the palace and he heads the Orpheum circuit. Um, and another one, you've probably heard of the William Morris Agency. Mr. Morris himself wages this battle against Albie and Keith to um, break up their monopoly. But vaudeville, of course, didn't last. And while video may have killed the radio star, the radio and the talkies killed vaudeville. So vaudeville shows had begun screening little bits of movies, but before long, the actual vaudeville acts were sidelined in favor of the film. So it was the movie that was starring with some vaudeville acts on the side. And soon people abandoned vaudeville altogether for radio and movies. The Great Depression didn't help. Um, And the New York Palace shut down in 1934. That was the last big house that was left. Which they didn't know what they were doing, did they? <laughs> if they saw TV today, they might have changed their minds. <laughs> but a lot of really huge film stars got their start in vaudeville. It was sort of a place to get some experience, make your presence known, maybe make a name. And Well, and it was so cutthroat. If you were going to make it on vaudeville, you'd be able to make it, make it in Hollywood. So we'll end with another note from vaudeville management. Gentlemen will kindly avoid the stamping of feet and pounding of canes on the floor and greatly oblige the management. All applause is best shown by clapping of hands. Please don't talk during acts as it annoys those about you and prevents a perfect hearing of the entertainment. So I think Verizon would be sponsoring this today or something. (laughs) We'd like to amend it so you can't take out your iPhone or BlackBerry and check your emails and texts. Uh, Consider that a public service announcement from the girls of Stuff You Missed in history class. And that brings us to today's listener mail. So this email is from Jose, who is writing us about our Nellie Bly podcast and her stunt in the insane asylum. He writes, The building is now called the Octagon. This building was renovated not too long ago, and many of the residents say that they sometimes feel people following them, where they can hear footsteps and things of that nature. And he goes on after this to write that, I was walking to the lobby one day late at night, and I felt a rush of wind on my face. Creepy. Um, but as a side note, he writes that the building is totally green now. It's the first LEED-certified residential building in New York City, and it has the largest array of solar panels in New York City. So what an about-face for this this disturbing building. And if you have something cool you'd like to tell us, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We've also got a Twitter at Missed in History. You should come follow us. And if you'd like to read more about one of the famous people we mentioned, we talk about Eugene Sandow in our 10 Biggest Bodybuilders article, which you can find if you search on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 